Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff, and I like to sit in the geometric center of large auditoriums. And I'm Michael Ralph, and I like to sit in the very back corner of auditoriums. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturdays discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we're drinking Shiner Candied Pecan Porter from the Spetzel Brewery. I like candied pecans, but I've never had them in a beer glass, nor have I really even imagined having them in a beer glass. We've had porters on before, but we've never discussed them, and our beer advisor, Aaron Matthew, has let me know that they're usually a little sweeter than stouts, less acrid than stouts, less roasty than stouts. Not a lot of carbonation coming out of that. Typical, real dark ale type color and translucency. It's striking me as smelling, uh, that I would call that strongly sweet. All right, well, we'll talk more later. What are we doing today, Mr. Ralph? When professional development programs conflict with overemphasis on test scores, teachers face a precarious tension between their growth and the ever-present threat of dubious evaluations. We read about an effort to sustain professional development in writing instruction amid a high-stakes testing environment. Later, we look at the correlation between increasing cultural socialization and reductions in suspensions for black students. These findings illustrate the need for a culturally competent teaching workforce. Let's get started. For our first segment, we read Investigating Meaningful Impact in Adolescent Writing Achievement Within a High-Stakes Testing Context. This was written by Julie Smith, Melanie Leslie, Whitney Baker Beach, and Elizabeth Stewart. This was published in 2022 in the Journal of Research and Reading. Well, I will tell you that this, for me, these papers were an emotional roller coaster. I had strong feelings throughout both of these reads today, and not none of my feelings are actually about the content of the paper. I have very strong feelings, not about what they write about. Yeah, the so what caught my eye, the the actual reasons that I that I cued these this paper in particular, what caught my eye was uh, writing achievement because I like thinking about writing and that's something that I like to spend time thinking about and especially putting it within the context of high stakes testing environments. Um, I think being able to understand how efforts to improve instruction within some of the institutional constraints or the realities of U.S. education, like focuses on high stakes testing, is uh, relevant. I think it's important. We have to grapple with that because that is a reality for many teachers. It's it's kind of an interesting story. This paper, like the behind the paper of the story, that a professional development organ, a university, gets funding to provide professional development for schools, and then they like admittedly in their paper, and I kind of like this. They're like, yeah, we were operating for three years in this mechanism to help you know teachers improve the writing of their students in a manner that was completely not efficacious. So we basically wasted three years of funding and we decided to do something different the fourth year. And well, good for them. Good for them to decide to do something different the fourth year. That 
Yeah, because that's not time wasted, right? They're that yeah. they're they're attempting things. This this uh, this paper sits um, in an interesting way right next to the segment we did. Was it last month? Looking at the impacts of professional development, like at some of those like major professional development myths from that report, because this was like specifically thinking about a couple of those problems where you're like, does anybody really worry about those things? And these authors are like, we live those things. Yeah. Uh, and so that was, um, I didn't do that on purpose. That was just, that was just a really nice opportunity for me to look closer at some of our comments from that paper discussion. They're working with a school that is dealing with some, I'm going to say I want to say threats. What I wrote in my note was threats. Some threats from their standardized testing scores um, because they were marked as requires improvement. They were looking at, um, you know, heavy handed interventions, you know, lots of people losing their jobs, you know, some fundamental like turnaround efforts. If the test scores are not changed or not improved, they don't go up. Uh, And so the authors were asking the question, what is it like? What what works and what does not work as we're attempting to advocate for changes, what we think are improvements for instruction in this environment where there's this like enormous importance of addressing this, this threat in the room, which is the standardized tests. Yeah. I, in my personal notes for this paper, I use the word hostile teaching environment. And I don't, I think that may have been slightly hyperbolic, but it's definitely a, it's definitely a hard mode challenging teaching environment as there are these external pressures for the expectations for teacher performance. Not only that, uh, the, I would say the central figure of this paper is an, is an IRT that is sort of the liaison and she's on everybody. She, she's on everybody's team. She's working with the researchers and her job is, it is, is to support the teachers in this challenging environment, which I would note that there were four teachers involved and there was one, two, three, four, five years experience among those four teachers. Maybe it was six years. Three of them were first year teachers and one of them was a second or third year teacher. Uh, at a school that is uh, been under, which I believe they've described underperforming for 25 years. Uh, so it's a very challenging environment. Yeah. The, and so the, the context is just so important here. And it's one of the things that I'm going to come back to several times in our conversation. Uh, so you said 25 years, which is correct. 25 years. Partner school has historically been a, um, it, their quotes in the paper, struggling, unquotes, school. And I think that's that's an important thing to draw out and look at because they provided some other demographic stats. It is um, about half of the students at this school are African-American, about half are Hispanic, and only 2% of the students are white. Uh, 90% were identified as economically disadvantaged. And so there's a lot going on when we, when we say, when we say disadvantaged or when we say struggling, Uh, really the test scores are low. And when we ask the question, why is that? It is a really complex answer, really interrelated answer. Uh, And so we need to not lose sight of that. So as agents at a university who are been given federal money to help teachers improve writing. Yeah. And so all of that happens within the context of what is it like 
as researchers to be working with a school that is dealing with these high stakes testing threats. Yeah. That's like a big piece that they really attend to several times in this paper, which I think is good and important. And honestly, I wish they would have done it more. Um, there, you know, they point out there's a reference from another recent study that documented that teachers admit they spend their time dealing with testing, like testing strategies rather than professional development. Like they teachers will say, we ignore the PD if we have big testing problems we have to deal with. And one of the one of the challenging parts of this environment was the teacher turnover rate. And I am thinking about my life this past school year. And if I imagine that in addition to all of the things that I have dealt with this school year and all of the challenges that I have faced, if I also inserted a mandatory external essay writing exam every six weeks, what could I have possibly accomplished this year? That's how I see it. And that's just their like, that's just what they serve in this environment. That's just, that's just how we do. There's going to be a writing exam every six weeks that you will have to deal with on top of whatever it is you're normally trying to do with your kids. Mm. One of the things that I may have been um, naively unsympathetic about in my career is this burnout issue. Uh, I understand. I accept that it's a, fact here's 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 some crystalline facts about teacher turnover rate and it, i i never really um internalized this fact because i just can't imagine myself not being a teacher but when i put this every 6 weeks we're giving a district mandated common assessment standardized assessment in a school year that has been that that I have needed to be so fluid to navigate that my response to to that kind of um imposition would be screw that I'm not going to do this I'm out and I can it was like the first time I touched what burnout might feel like and so I guess in that regard, this is a very valuable paper for me to read because it helps me humanize my profession further than I had before. So thanks for that. Yeah. And just as clarification, this study is looking at results and experiences from the 2018-2019 school year, just for clarity. And so there are several spots, especially early on, where they're talking about how this, this engaged scholarship model, this this process of having the researchers collaborate with that instructional coach uh, to conduct this kind of this research and to inform the ongoing professional development initiative with these teachers is a really important part of this paper and it's something that I think is important to take away. I really I like that approach. I like that they're thinking about it and publishing on it. They they specifically say this allowed for a balance of power as our instructional coach had a say in the research design. And so that's something that explains where this, why are they focusing on writing instruction in the first place? That was something that the instructional coach defined was that this is what we want to work on uh, with this, is what I want to work on with the teachers over the course of this year. And they gave some, they gave some really compelling reasons to say that we need, we need to focus more on improving writing instruction. That's what I want to work on. And the researchers said, great, let's, let's look at what we can do from a scholarship position to support that work. And so I, I really appreciate their discussion of the power dynamics between the researchers and the instructional coach. I really wish I could have seen more about the discussion of where else 
the instructional coach was able to give input on the kinds of things that were happening both around the research and in the interventions throughout the course of the rest of the year. It looked like a lot of the stuff that I was reading, I felt like I was seeing we as researchers were pushing for this. We as researchers were advocating for that. And I didn't see a lot of additional discussion of the recursive back and forth, especially coming from the instructional coach. And I also, I would have liked to have seen some discussion of what kind of input did the students have? What kinds of input did the teachers have? Because I felt like I saw that even less. And so this discussion of power dynamics, I think of that exact story you told Lawrence of here would be my reaction if these things were being imposed upon me. And I think that's really important to attend to. And I think the experience of an instructional coach is important and merits consideration and they deserve input on this kind of collaborative partnership. I wish I could have read more about the input the students and teachers had. Well, it wasn't really about students and teachers, was it? It was about, uh, how do we, um, how do we provide PD that improves the writing pedagogy for students? And to be frank, they didn't. And I think the only way to understand that is to hear more from the teachers. But the teachers told us their answers. We we got there. Um, the the answers for here is how these things impacted us, or here's what we did in response to them. I didn't see a lot of discussion of them feedbacking the process. Oh, 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 oh. I see. Well, was, was, you mean the research process? Or the instructional, or, or the instructional development process that the research is being done on. How the IRT presented the support or provided support? Yes. Yeah, or what what learning opportunities they were given, or or whatever, or whatever. Uh, but I, I'm thinking specifically there's a there's a table that kind of outlined some impacts late in the paper that I thought um, encapsulated, like <laughs> encapsulated some really important information as they talked about in the in the first chunk of time from September to December, they saw the re- the researchers saw concerted effort from the teachers to implement the framework. Yeah. And then from January to March, the framework disappeared yeah. and we did not do this anymore. And then in April to May, we did not want to resume doing this. Uh, and I think there's some important information in that about, uh, you know, they, they describe what the teachers were saying of like these, we were prioritizing, you know, wrote preparation for the standard, the standardized assessment. And then we were exhausted from preparing for the standardized assessment. So we're not in a position to uh, where we were, we were willing to make choices about reattempting some of these instructional practices. And so I wonder, I wonder what conversations they were having in February when the teachers were making those decisions to say, we are not going to continue to attempt to implement these kinds of frameworks, what, what if anything, would they have been willing to consider implementing? This whole paper to me felt like trying to improve the writing of the kids or provide support for improving the pedagogy for writing for the kids Felt like contracting a plumber to fix a drippy sink while the toilet overflows upstairs. The problem in this paper was the assessments. It wasn't, I, it, it was the assessments. Um, um, students did better. So there was a, there was a, 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 
an anecdote in the story where the students were sort of feeling better about their writing and feeling um, this growth toward their writing. And then uh, because that growth wasn't uh, acknowledged on the district assessment, there was a, this caused a particular student in the anecdotes to cry. And I think that this um, encapsulates the the relationship that these formative formal assessments have with our learning process. Uh, this destroys the progress that the teachers were making. Those students had the belief that they were growing in their writing. They were excited to participate in the activities where they could practice and grow in the skill. And as soon as the district assessment grade was placed on the endeavor, uh, their growth was not acknowledged. And so the emotions of excitement was replaced with sorrow and shame. And that test destroyed the growth oriented culture that was going to lead to sustained competency later. And so when we reset them every six weeks with a, you haven't gotten better yet, you haven't gotten better yet, you haven't gotten better yet, we actually are resetting, we're, we're cutting, we are pruning the buds of our trees uh, as they start to get excited about their writing. And one of the problems was that the, None of the writing, all the writings they were doing were essentially um, external prompts. They And this was, we did get feedback from the kids about how they didn't get to make a lot of choices in their writing. It doesn't, whether it's, doesn't matter whether it's academic writing uh, at the collegiate level or it's journaling in the first grade level or it's making up a story or writing a joke. Writing is a personal activity and sometimes you need to sit with these ideas and these feelings for a period of time before you have even enough communication that you feel is worthy to to write down. So with this every week we're going to we're going to give you a new prompt. We don't we're not encouraging students to sit and steep and think about what they are writing. We're encouraging them to execute the the uh algorithms of writing that we are teaching them, which allows them to earn the right number of points on state assessment without engaging in the art of writing. So this pressure to, to, to perform on the tests is it's bad for the kids. It's bad for the teacher. It's bad for the IRT. It's, it's, it's the enemy here. And I would wonder how much their writing would we improve if we just stopped testing them. I agree with everything you're saying, except one thing. Yeah. You said those algorithms allow them to earn enough points on the standardized test, and that's false, too. Oh, yeah, you're right. No, they absolutely don't. Uh, and so... It's the perception. Stop. Like, right? Yeah. Like that, it's, as you mentioned in the setup, these are all new teachers. They don't have the experience to know that these sorts of bulk practice strategies that are intuitive but ineffective are ineffective. So... Don't like it's it's not going to get it done. If it would have worked, it would have worked already. It would have worked sometime in the last 25 years. So don't. There's a section late, late in the paper where they talked about the students don't conceive of themselves as being writers generally. Right. They don't think of the things they do as writing, even though they acknowledge that they write long handwritten letters to family members, that they text their friends, that they engage on Twitter. And then they explicitly define all of those things as not writing. And in that same section before that, they discuss the teachers because the teacher, like the way the the uh, 
support was given is that the IRT said, I'm modeling some, the teachers talked about it, the teachers tried them, and they brought them to the classroom. So the teachers got some informal, you know, writing support, and the teachers felt better about themselves as writers. Well, guess who was tested and who wasn't? Those kids were tested. They didn't feel good about being writers. The teachers were not tested. They felt better about being writers. Yeah. So, so I I agree. I think the district testing model is is really really discouraging and should probably just stop. Like probably today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I feel like this paper is it's the prologue to the paper that I actually want to read, which is what do these teachers do next year? That's what I actually want to know. Which, of course, was... What they did was teach online. Yeah, yeah, 19 through 20, so it doesn't matter. In fact, honestly, who knows? Maybe that was maybe that was supposed to be part of this, and then it just didn't happen because COVID hit. Shoulds let students choose their own writing prompts. Yeah. Offer a student choice. That was a big deal. That was a big deal in their data. And they, they saved a lot of that discussion for late, but it was it was bright. That was a bright spot. Like, you, we got to give them more agency in their writing. I think you can extend that to how they write and when they write, like offering more opportunities to connect to their existing knowledge around writing, especially where it shows up in their lives, but they don't currently conceive of it as writing. I think connecting to those things matters. Maybe don't test them every six weeks with a district test. That seems awful. Uh, yeah, man. If testing is the goal, then teaching is not. Yeah, the abuse. I, I put it on social media. The tyranny of the proxy was a phrase that that stood out for me in my mind thinking about this. The tyranny of the proxy. If there's anything you're doing and the best justification for it is that it is test prep. Stop doing that thing. If for no other reason, and there are so many reasons, but if for no other reason, stop doing it because it doesn't work. It just, it does not achieve the stated purpose in the first place. Yeah, that was, that was a paper that had a couple, a lot of things in it. As in, I read it as a, I hate standardized, mandated standardized testing. It's the emotional journey that I was on that I was reading it. Though there were some things about writing in there. <laughs> so, you know, like process oriented writing versus, what was it? Cognitive skill oriented writing. I think we. it's important I, I acknowledge I am engaged in a PhD with a department that does a tremendous amount of standardized testing. I acknowledge that. I think that it's important to make a distinction between the standardized testing, like the accountability standardized testing that happens once a year that I think is what they're referencing here with like putting the school as a, as a required for improvement. That didn't happen every six weeks. That happened once a year. And that is distinct from the every six weeks mandated testing from the district, which is the assessment that I think is hot garbage. Um, Because the the paper describes several spots where they're like, yeah, the students have room for improvement in writing. It's they, there are, there are writing skills and conventions that the teachers want them to be able to use that they are not exhibiting evidence of being able to use. And so I hate standardized testing. Standardized testing is a whole, well, we could do a whole podcast. And, yeah. Like podcasts, like series of conversations about standardized testing. There's a lot in that. There are many tensions in that, that I am continuing to navigate as a human. But in this case, I don't think the standardized testing data is probably wrong. Like the standardized, like the large scale operational assessments. I don't, I suspect that they're probably, yeah, they're identifying some, some 
um, areas where students have not reached competency. I think that's probably true. And so I hate additional bonus testing. Well, see, that is a call that that's a degree of having to draw the line somewhere. Uh, My district right now is taking instructional time away from everyone to include greater reading supports for the, and I don't know what number this is. I'm going to say 15% of the kids that are not hitting proficiency at those once a year tests. And I'm not sure that's the best use of that time either. Right. So even if the once a year tests are giving information that is in driving bad pedagogical decisions, um, I'm not, that's not, I'm not convinced that that's good either. Uh, Acknowledged. Yeah. And I don't, I don't refute anything that you've said right there. It's not just the frequency. I, I do think there is a difference in frequency. I do think more than zero math is, is useful. Is useful. Okay. Um, an important difference is also the quality of the assessment. Because writing standardized tests is hard. Yeah. Reference again that position of I've, I, I see what it looks like at the operational scale. It's really hard. And recall this paper specifically talked about students who are making progress and did not have it show up on the district tests because the district tests were wrong. And that's incredibly harmful. So doing bad measurement is actually undermining their pursuit of their goals versus I I, I suspect currently that the once a year tests were not generally inaccurate. Okay. I think that they were valid. They're identifying true true shortcomings and competency. So if I can have once a year assessments, once a year seems great. That's, that's, I don't, can't do them any more infrequently with our current scheduling, scheduling paradigm, but like one test that is a measurement I can rely on. They're like, yeah, that's a, that's a measurement that probably means something. I have uses for that. I have made dramatic changes in my own instructional practice when my own classroom assessments did not line up with success at an operational level assessment, and it drove improvement for me that I could not do without that external assessment versus the district assessments that are like, you're getting better. Here's a measurement that's bad and telling you you're not getting better. Now go get better some more. Like if they didn't, they're like, this is terrible. I'm going to stop. And that's a totally rational reaction to that kind of an experience. So it's not just the frequency. It's also that trying to do lots and lots of assessments is incredibly difficult. You're more likely to do bad measurement and bad measurements incredibly harmful. Yeah. Document everything. For our second segment, we read Reducing Suspension for Minor Infraction and Improving School Climate Perceptions Among Black Adolescents via Cultural Socialization, a Multi-Informant Longitudinal Study. This was written by Ming-Tay Wang, Christina Scanlon, Juan Del Toro, and Sarah McKellar. This was published in 2022 in Learning and Instruction. This one is also looking at some of the manifestations of systemic racism in the United States. Yeah, that first article, our first segment made me think about teaching in a hostile teaching environment. And this is, to me, about a hostile learning environment, potentially. So that's something that I care about. And I think that we should read regularly, um, especially addressing the the oppressive disciplinary practices is something that 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 data is something that I am aware of and I've been following before. 
I thought it was important to have an opportunity to look really closely at those data because I have not um, given it sort of the deep read scrutiny that we do for our show prep before. And so that was something that I wanted to get into as well. Uh, and especially an opportunity to reduce that marginalizing impact seemed important. And so just taking the, the title at face value, I was like, that's something I want to know about. So I threw it up. The core phenomenon that this is responding to is the well-documented uh, measurements that black students are more likely to get suspended for minor infractions than other students in the United States. That has been well-established, well-documented, measured many times. This is a pattern in, in our U.S. system. And so uh, that has consequen uh, consequences. It decreases their trust in the education system. Uh, and so then it proposes this concept of, well, to me, the proposed to me, because it existed before I read this paper, but cultural socialization, uh, which is integrating respective cultural diversity and acknowledgement in the school uh, as being healthy for kids. And this study explores the potential relationship between cultural socialization and the frequency of black students getting suspended for stupid stuff. I mean, to get to the, the findings, schools with greater cultural socialization, uh, greater acknowledgement of the diversity of cultures, specifically in this case, black culture, uh, and, and though they didn't explicitly say it, probably having a greater um, respect and acknowledgement of black education spaces and recognizing the uh, cultural influence of uh all people in the disciplines that we're teaching um, reduces the frequency with which black students are um, suspended for infractions that would not suspend white students. So having a greater cultural acknowledgement within the school is better for these disciplinary practices. And I guess I just was reading it with the sort of implicit understanding that that is in the hands of teachers. That's in the hands of teachers. Here's a non sequitur. In their um, discussion of measures, they had they gave a bunch of surveys and they got most of them back. I think they got a 99% response rate for their surveys. So they had a 1% loss and then they used some kind of mechanism as a data fill that I didn't understand. But uh, it made me feel like... Uh, very little data was missing, and they'll just use frog DNA for the stuff they didn't have, you know? And that's kind of how I read that section, because I didn't know the stats speak to really understand what was going on. But uh, school, social, school cultural socialization is about creating a cultural context in the members of the school writ large, the teachers and the students, that is multicultural yeah. instead of monocultural, which is in the United States, very often white culture. And that when there is more school cultural socialization, which is to say a greater sense of multiculturalism, especially among a predominantly white staff, they are less likely to enact implicit biases that primarily harm black students. And I think that this study, they just, they measured that. Yeah. 
I appreciate the the discussion about suspension in general. And in this paper, they did not distinguish between in-school suspension or out-of-school suspension. But uh, to some extent, it is not direct. I don't know to what extent that that matters, but both in-school and out-of-school suspension operate by removing the student from the school, the classroom, the culture, the community. Uh, and by doing that, they become further disenfranchised from the school, which exacerbates the problem um, because it reinforces a concept that they are not part, they are not belonging to the school culture. Um, when teachers perceive greater, when teachers perceive greater school cultural socialization, so when teachers are able to say, yes, we do acknowledge, respect, and include uh, multicultural perspectives in our system, uh, there are fewer suspensions for, 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 for these purposes, which increases the sense of belonging. So schools that are racially aware reduce these problems, whereas not discussing these problems and not discussing these issues exacerbates them, which to me is very salient in our uh, education political climate currently, nationally. That to improve our students' sense of belonging in our schools, acknowledging and discussing racial complications and perspectives and influences is a should not avoiding them or dodging them. Yeah. The, so I want to, let's unpack for a minute what it, what minor infractions means and what they described in the paper, because what they, what they outlined initially, and I think is important to recognize is minor infractions it could be easy in a naive state to say, well, they're still infractions, so people are getting consequences. And that's not actually very often what is happening. In this developmental stage, minor infractions are often simply manifestations of appropriate developmental progress for adolescents as they engage in more risk-taking and more risky behaviors, which is a thing that humans do as they get older and start to explore the impacts of risk-taking. And so those things are appropriate and how teachers respond to them is what is different. There's a, there's a, a statement late in their discussion where the authors say as teachers discretion determines which behaviors warrant disciplinary responses in the first place, this finding suggests that school cultural socialization may reduce bias and increase cultural understanding among educators thus leading to more equitable responses to behavioral infractions. And so the difference is in the teacher's response because the students are adolescents doing adolescent things. Yeah. It's about perception of threat, which comes back to the biases, the implicit biases of the teachers. If the, when, when the infraction is perceived as more threatening, it will have a harsher harsher disciplinary consequence. And if the perception of threat has nothing to do with the action, but has to do with the source of the action, then we have discrimination. Um, so we've got to be aware of that. One of the things that I found interesting, not necessarily directly connected to what we were just talking about, but was that 
in general, the students perceived higher cultural socialization in the schools than the teachers did. And I thought that was interesting because I think that the teacher's perspective is mostly limited to their own classroom. So they are left to assume what necessarily, what kind of other cultural socialization experiences the kids are having elsewhere in the building or at other times during the day. Because this was a high school. Um, whereas the students are actually experiencing a wider a range of interactions during the day as they may have, you know, five to seven classrooms that they're experiencing. So if they have two teachers that are doing a great job with social culturalization, they may feel like, yeah, our school is doing it. And if one teacher is like, well, I've got this one lesson once a year, but I probably should be doing more and I'm not and I don't know what my other teachers are doing, they're probably going to rate the school with a lower report card. So I thought that that was interesting that students generally reported higher levels of social culturalization than the, than the teachers did. One of the things that I would have liked to have seen them do differently in this paper is I would have liked to have seen their framing of social culturalization as an issue to be more squarely focused on the teachers. Because as I read many of these findings, I really understood this to mean as we adopt developing a more culturally socialized environment in schools, that is an issue for educators. And in this case, the educators were, as you mentioned earlier, 90% white even though the student body is had a very small percentage of white students. And so this is an issue for teachers to address as they deal with their implicit bias. Uh, and the fact that 90% of the teachers were white is also an issue for administrators and uh, teacher educators to address. Yeah. And so I would have liked to have seen those things foregrounded more uh, as opposed to focusing on the black students who are very much affected by this problem. But as far as like interventions and applications, I felt like we should be focusing on the issues of the teachers. And so I would have liked to have seen that placed a little bit more in the foreground of their discussions um, and whiteness, the manifestations of whiteness and white supremacy in U.S. education. And uh, something else that I would have liked to have seen in the paper is a positionality statement. Um, there's this growing um, understanding that quantitative papers, especially quantitative papers that are dealing with racism it is appropriate for the authors, even in quantitative studies, to include a discussion of their own positionality. I would have liked to have seen that in this paper also. I think a discussion of who they are and what brings them to this work would have been appropriate, would have helped me understand why they chose the framing that they did, like focusing so heavily on the black students as opposed to the white educators. So one of the things that I'm wrestling with as I think about shoulds is they reference several times about addressing educators' implicit biases, like me addressing my own. And I set that next to or I wrestle with the uh, inefficacious nature of so many implicit bias trainings, so many implicit bias initiatives, and the preponderance of evidence that many of them, not all of them, but many of them are not producing meaningful change. And so I'm not going to the place of we need to be spending more money to purchase implicit bias packages because I'm deeply skeptical that generally that they're moving the needle. 
And so the question is, what do we do to promote and increase and expect increasing cultural socialization in schools? particularly for white educators to be engaging their own racialized and gendered position in schools. And just thinking about who am I? Who am I in this classroom? Who am I in relationship to to the students in my room? Who am I in relationship to the rest of the students in the school? Who am I in relationship to my coworkers? What is my position in the community and in society? And what do I do from that position? The Those are important questions. Those are personal questions. Those can cause some discomfort in folks, especially people who have historically been able to avoid those kinds of considerations. And so I'm thinking about what does it look like to build a community, to build a professional development scheme, to build departmental cultures, to build community outreach events where you have teachers, in this case, 90% of the faculty are white teachers, having meaningful experiences in relationship with a community that does not look like them so they can grow themselves, which ultimately will reduce their implicit biases, which will ultimately reduce the amount of harm being done to black students. And so I, and so I'm wrestling with, I'm thinking about how do we improve cultural socialization in a way that reduces implicit bias without going to some of these surface level but ineffective approaches that are only going to waste time and money and don't actually move the needle. That's I'm just wrestling with that. There's also some like thoughtful material for administrators here uh, or those in a position to hire. Um, because it is easier, I think for a diversified teaching staff to achieve a culture of social social acculturation, cult, or rather cultural socialization than a monolithic 90% white staff to do so. And so that's not necessarily in my power. That's not in my power as a classroom teacher. There are things that I can do, but I can't, I, I really can't meaningfully influence that teacher identity uh community teacher identity or the teacher community in the school but administrators and district officials have the power to shape the teacher community in their in their schools which can have downstream consequences for cultural socialization Well then, how was the beer? Oh my gosh. I have never disliked a beer we have drank on the show more than this one. I didn't finish it. I am at the bottom of my first one, and only that did I achieve after discussion with Mr. Woodruff about my disinclination to finish. Man, I do not like this beer. One, this beer was a gift from my mother. Mom, you missed. This is no good. 
It's very bitter. I like nuts, but I don't like pecans and I don't like walnuts. And there's something in pecans and walnuts that like people are like, oh, have a pecan pie. And I'm like, do you guys not understand how bitter and terrible this is? This beer is like extracting the bitter and terribleness from pecans. There's this top flavor and this bottom flavor that sit on each other like oil and water. They do not mix at all all and it wasn't until deeper into my second glass that it felt like i was i was chewing bubble gum while sucking on wormwood that's what this tastes like it's like if if spoiled milk was a beer oh my gosh well done aaron don't go out of your way for this one please i want aaron i want you to drink this one (laughs) i want to hear an informed perspective on this one it's, it's 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 like when you're like oh this is terrible here come smell this you this is not one i want you to have access to don't you don't be excited about this we appreciate you tuning in for another month we know we're coming up on the summer so uh we solidarity and well wishes with everyone who is finishing up their school years uh this has been quite a school year and the work you do is important and we hope that this has been a comfort and an enjoyment for you as we finish up our school years we will see you next month we want to improve so as we pursue growth Discuss research and struggle well.